All right, here's where we get to preach gospel to you. Um, we're just beginning to work through, there we go, we got some pianos here, some new stuff together. Uh, before I start, let me walk in the light with you about something funny. I am in a very fragile place as a preacher this morning because this week my preaching was criticized for being too deep and it was also criticized for being too shallow. And so I have no idea what to do right now. I don't know if I should preach for 10 minutes or for like three hours. I don't know if I should go for two syllable words or six syllable words. I don't know if I should use Tom and Jerry as my analogies or Macbeth. I have no idea. So I'm just going to be myself. And hopefully these words will be clear and compelling to you. But the big win here is not the preacher. The big win here is the words of Scripture, just lighting a fire in your, in your soul. Uh, I don't mean to say that you should not be helpfully critiquing and correcting your preachers. You should be doing that with your Bible in your hand. I'm just saying even we sometimes get mixed messages and go, all right, I'm not exactly sure how to be helpful this morning, but here we go. All right, let's pray and we'll do it. Father, you've been kind to us. Look at this, a room of people being invited into your, your love and your truth and your grace. So I pray that we would receive from you clearly today, that our hearts would be ready to do that. Give us ears to hear. Hear my prayer for that. Amen. Okay, great. We are uh, just starting to preach through the biblical book of Hebrews. We introduced this for you last week, and here's what we said. This book of your Bible was written to Jewish Christians who had heard and believed the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah. But now they were coming under intense fire. They were being persecuted for their confession of faith in and their personal devotion to Jesus. It was getting rugged to be labeled as a Christian. And so they were being tempted to make the move of going, psych, you know how that works? You say something, and then you go, psych, which means I was just kidding. Okay, that was a 1980s Boston thing. But the Hebrews, these Hebrews, we're going, um, about that Jesus thing. Yeah, no. We're having a little buyer's remorse, and we're just going to slide back to the old life that we had been living as Hebrews, but not Hebrew Christians or Christ followers. This letter was written to them to say, don't do that. Don't bail on Jesus. We're going to take the next two weeks to introduce you to the two basic arguments that are used throughout this letter. You're going to feel them over and over and again. So over these two weeks, I want to get you ready for hearing them and feeling them well. The whole book, he throws the same two pitches. Um, I became a huge baseball fan when uh, I was a little kid. And we lived in Staten Island, New York. That's how little I was at the start of my life. And there was a pitcher for the New York Mets called Dwight Gooden. 
Mike Gooden was 20 years old, and they let him pitch in the major leagues. But not only let him pitch, he dominated. I will never forget the night. My parents used to let me watch Monday Night Baseball if I had finished all of my homework. It was in the summer, but school was still in session. It was 147 degrees in Chicago. You know how it gets that way in Chicago? And Dwight Gooden was pitching, and he had this awesome half afro and this thick gold chain, number 16. Dwight Gooden threw a one-hitter that night, and the only hit was this little dribbler down the third base line, and the third baseman almost got the guy. And I watched the whole game from beginning to end, which was huge when I was like seven years old. I'm telling you this because Dwight Gooden dominated with only two pitches. One was a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and the other was a 72-mile-an-hour curveball. The only two pitches that he threw, and they were so forceful and so unbelievable that nobody could hit this guy. It was either the fastball or the looping curveball. That was it. This is exactly what our author does. He comes at you with force, but the whole game long, the whole book long, he's only throwing two pitches. Here's what we're calling them. Gospel glories and sober warnings. Gospel glories and sober warnings. Okay, sober warnings is next week. Let's do gospel glories. Here's what we mean by this word, gospel glories. In his infinite wisdom, God determined to save sinners over the course of time. He was going to roll out his plan of salvation, not in one minute, but over time. And so when our race fell into sin through the negligence and the unbelief of our father and our federal head, Adam or Adam, God made a promise of redemption, but he didn't make it happen in that moment in the garden. It was going to happen over time. You may hear us refer to history as redemptive history, God redeeming over time. And so, from the first gospel promise, all of history is an unfolding of the story of God's grace to his people. Now, if you dumb this down to its most simplest form, we talk about it in two stages, the older covenant and the new covenant. Or we might say it like this, the law and the gospel. The older covenant was put in place after the Lord had freed the Hebrews from their slavery in Egypt. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know about this. God led the people to Sinai Mountain, and through the ministry of angels, he gave his older covenant, his law, to Moses, and he instituted all of those older covenant realities. There's a long list of things. The priesthood, the sacrificial system, the feast days, the tabernacle. And all of it was very, very good, but absolutely huge here is all of it was temporary. It was inadequate, insufficient. There was real glory in it, no doubt, but it was provisional glory. 
It was meant to prepare us for and point us to Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. The first covenant was not meant to be the final solution, the ultimate remedy. It was always intended to give way when Jesus came. So it's not older covenant bad, new covenant good. It's older covenant good in its time, but the new covenant way better. The older covenant had glory, but that glory was nothing compared with the glory of the gospel. Okay, that's theological talk. So those of you who like it deep, there it was. And now I'm going to give you some analogies to make that make sense in your brain. Okay, I'll give you two. Are you familiar with the terms varsity and JV? Can I just see who's familiar with those terms so I know who I'm talking to? All right. When I was a sophomore, and embarrassingly, a little bit of a junior, I played on the junior varsity basketball team at St. Dominic Savio High School in East Boston, JV. Was that a good or a bad thing? It was a good thing, right? We had real referees. We had real uniforms. Number 24, we even had this old school button-down shooting jacket that you would wear when you were warming up and then you would take it off. We had a good coach, Angelo Fantasia. Does he sound like he's from East Boston or what? I was learning to play the game of basketball. JV was good. But what's the ultimate point of playing JV? Learning to get to the varsity team. Varsity coach is better. In our case, Hall of Fame coach, 600 wins. I don't know if you noticed, but the varsity uniforms are better. The younger you are, the shorter the shorts are. That's the way that that works. Varsity uniforms almost went down to my knees. It was awesome. The time slot of the game is better. You don't play at 5 o'clock and only grandpa is in the stands watching. 7.30, the whole school is there. The referees are way better. Everything about varsity is better. What would you say if a senior in high school made the varsity team and was like slotted to be starting at power forward, but then said to you, you know what? I'm going to stick with the JV team this year and play JV. What would you say to that kid? That's crazy. You don't go backwards like that. Come on. That's the argument that the book of Hebrews is going to make for us. You don't go in that direction. All right, different analogy. Where are my foodies in the house? Like you take food wicked seriously. Less of you? Oh, wow, okay. Or are you just embarrassed to say, no, I'm a foodie? All right, so last night, Grace took us to a place called Italy in the Prudential Center in the city, right? Like a cruise family night, we went out to do that. You know what this is? I may get this wrong. I was there. I tried to figure out what it was. But it's like a high-end Italian supermarket slash place to get fresh food. Just if you like Italian food, this is the dream for you. All those awesome words like mozzarella and prosciutto and provolone and all of that stuff. And a place for wine. And they made fresh, fresh cannolis. Just unbelievable place called Italy. 
the only place that I had ever eaten before in the Prudential Center was the food court. You know what that is? Okay. And across the street, it's not there anymore, but there used to be a Wendy's. All right. What would Grace say to me if after taking in the whole Eataly place, like walking through the whole joint, I looked at her and said, hey, I'm going to uh, go across the street and get some Wendy's. She would say what? You're crazy. I mean, Wendy's is okay if you, if you have to eat something. But Eataly, once you've been inside of Eataly, there's no going across the street to Wendy's. You can multiply your own analogy in your head that would be helpful. This is one of the pitches that's going to come at you seven or eight times in the book of Hebrews. The older covenant was good, but not one older covenant reality. Not the angels, not Moses, not Joshua, not the promised land, not the tabernacle, not the sacrifices, not the priesthood. None of it compares to the glory of Christ. Here's the big idea of this pitch. Jesus is infinitely, immeasurably, incomparable, no content. It's not even close better than any and all rival Savior. There's your one argument that's going to come. Now, hear this correctly with me. This is not saying Jesus is the top of the list but there's all these other potential saviors really close to him. It's saying that Jesus is in a category of his own. He has no rivals. He is the only savior worth having. All right, the internet has introduced to us many beautiful things. True? Do perfect. Weather underground. You can just go onto the internet and it tells you what the weather's going to be in the next 10 days and it even shows you the clouds like moving. Nest, you know what that is? It's on this wall right here. From home, you can turn the heat on at the church. Did you know that? Internet, man, wild. One of the other things that the internet has given us is ranking. Have you noticed that every third website that you go to is giving you the top five or the top 10 or the top 100 rankings of things. Have you seen these sites? When they're super annoying, they make you click on every one to get to the next one. You know what I'm talking about? Vacation destinations, movie stars, athletes, bands, colleges. All those rankings happen. Often with those rankings, the separation at the top is really minute really minute. So like if we were talking vacation destinations and I said to you, Maui or Fayetteville, Arkansas, I mean, 600 clicks and you're getting to Fayetteville. But if I said to you, Maui or the Grand Cayman Islands, maybe somebody has a preference of one better than the other, but they'd each be pretty sweet, right? How about movie stars? Robert De Niro or Keanu Reeves? There's a lot of distance between those two guys, right? But how about Robert De Niro, Al Pacino? That's tough. I mean, either way, then when they're both in the same movie, like The Godfather 2, oh man, look out. How about singers? Bruno Mars, Keisha, Millie Vanilli. Huge distance. 
What about Bruno Mars and Jamie Cullum or Bruno Mars and Michael Buble? That gets tougher, right? They're just like at the top of the list. This is not the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making with you. Hebrews has much more of a bracket feel, like a tournament, March Madness, WWE King of the Ring. It's Jesus versus, and every time, Jesus triumphs incomparably, infinitely. You put Jesus up against any potential Savior, and he outshines and outclasses them without question. That's the argument. There's no list here. Jesus is on a list by himself. All right, so all I'm going to do today now is to run you through some texts of Scripture, and we're going to see what this feels like in the Bible. Okay, the first bracket, the first competition is going to sound a little weird, but stick with me. It's Jesus versus angels. Jesus versus angels. After the first four verses of opening the letter with this explosion about the glory of Christ, he says these words to us. He says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more superior than theirs. Okay, so can everyone feel everything that I just said to you in your Bible? What does he say? That Jesus has become, I didn't touch it yet, Ralph, when I touch it, all right, having become as much superior. That's the language we're looking for. That's the language that's coming. Jesus is much superior. Much, much superior. Much, 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 much superior. You see the comparison coming? And then he says it a second way in your Bible. He says, it's just like the name that he has been given is more excellent. Here's the argument. The angel's name's excellent, but Jesus is much, much more. He is setting this up for us, and we're going to feel it over and over again. All right, let's talk about this weird angels thing. I don't know if you were expecting that to be the first thing that he went to. Let's talk about angels. Angels were what we would call older covenant mediators. It would have been understood by the people receiving this letter that in the older covenant, the law was given to the nation of Israel through the mediation of angels. When Stephen in the book of Acts is preaching his sermon to Jews in Jerusalem, he says it to them like this, you who received the law as delivered by angels. You received the law from God, the older covenant, and it was delivered to you mediated by angels. We see this a lot in the older covenant. Jacob's ladder is this thing in your Bible that Jacob spent a night communing with the Lord, and it was pictured to him as a ladder with angels ascending and descending. In other words, Jacob's engagement with the living God was mediated by angels. And so I need you to feel this morning, there is a glory to angels, these celestial beings. They were God's means of communicating to his people in the age leading up to Christ. If that's true, the temptation on the people would have been to say, look man, if we got angels, we don't really need Jesus. Look at Moses. Look at Jacob. God 
gave us the law through angels. If we have angels, we don't really need Jesus. Now, before we make fun of them for being so stupid, we are the same way. There's a cult in our country right now called Jehovah's Witnesses, and they will knock on your door and look you in the eye and tell you, oh, Jesus is great, but he's just an angel. In fact, excuse me, in fact, he is Michael, the archangel. What have they done? They have lowered Jesus to just being an angel. Now they would say to you, but an angel has great glory. He's just not God. Jesus has been demoted. It's happening right now. Even evangelical Christians tend to exalt angels above a place where they should be. This is also embarrassing, but I know the lyrics to a chorus of a song from the 80s that goes like this. Angels watching over me. Every move I make, angels watching over me. Nobody? Okay. Now, that's not a horrible song. We'll see in the text that angels are servants of God's people leading us, helping us to salvation in ways that we can't see. But are we going to be singing about angels? You feel that temptation there? Or are we going to be singing about Christ? Even we can creep toward this happening right here. And then you live in the superstitious day that we live in. We hunt ghosts and zombies, and there's an obsession in American culture with the supernatural. So you, before you chuckle at these folks, just take a minute to look in the mirror and think about, in all ages, angels, spirits get exalted before, beyond what they belong. All right, so the writer's going to help us with this, and the first thing he does is he says, yes, angels have glory, but it is a secondary glory. He says it to you in two ways. Here's more Bible. One, he says, angels are magnificent, but they're only creatures. Katie read this verse to us. Of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. In other words, Angels are glorious, but they're just a part of the created order. Now, they are at the height of the created order. There is no more magnificent, noble, beautiful creature than angels. Anytime in the scriptures where an angel manifests for the good of God's people, what's their reaction? Complete shock and awe and fear at the glory of this being. I mean, my best example is Grace and I were in Vail, Colorado one time. And we were like, we're going hiking. We're not big hiking people, but we were in Vail, Colorado, so you got to go hiking. So we beat everybody to this trail. We beat all the animals to the trail. I mean, that's how early we were. So we hiked about half of a mile, and I was looking back and talking to her and about to take a turn like this. And I'm telling you, she went, oh, and I slowly turned my head, and I was looking a deer, an elk, it felt like a mythical creature out of Lord of the Rings, right in the eyes. It was the most magnificent creature I had ever seen that close. Like this wasn't a zoo, right? This was me and him. Boom. Magnificent part of the created order. What did I do? I shrieked like, and I poop my pants a little, and I peed a little, and whatever you do when you are in a panic, 
but I shrieked like a 10-year-old. The ranger was like, you got a little girl with you? Because I heard some shrieking up there. <laughs> he turned and bolted. I turned and bolted because I was petrified. That's, go to a story in the Bible where an angel appears, and that's basically the human reaction. Magnificent, but just a part of the created order. Do you feel that? Good, but not ultimate. And then he says it like this also. They are super awesome, but they're only servants. Here's how he said it. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay? Is a servant a good thing? And the way that angels serve, I mean going to war for us, principalities and powers, like magnificent, magnificent, but servants. The servant does what the king says. The angels minister to the Lord, but they are not the Lord. So they're awesome, but they're only servants. Does everyone feel like what he has done here? Angels have a great glory. The older covenant work was glorious, but they're only creatures and they're only servants. And then he blows it up because he hits us with six punches from Scripture about the incomparable glory of Christ. He goes to the older covenant, which his readers would have known, but they were unable to make the connection between the older covenant and Jesus, and so he makes this connection for them. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 17, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110. Six different times. He goes to older covenant words to show you the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. So now let's just get ready to take the body blows, and the last one will be a knockout punch. Here we go. We're going to work them fast. I want you to see the argument happening, the supremacy of Christ. Number one, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten? Can everyone feel this? You feel the comparison happening? Angels are great. But to which of the angels did God ever say something like this? And what did he say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's my son. Totally different category. In the New Testament, this verse is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Begotten doesn't mean born. Begotten means identified as unique through his resurrection of the dead. God was putting his stamp on Christ, my son, in a way that no angel could ever be. What angel has died and risen from the dead? Jesus is better. Then he says it like this. Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Feel it again? The name son does not belong to any created thing. I coached a lot of kids in rec basketball over here, but I never spoke about one of them the way that I did about Matt or about Brandon, because none of them were my son. That's a different story. 
This is from the story of David when God comes to him and covenants with him and says, David, I am going to give you an irrevocable dynasty, a kingdom that will never end. A son of yours will sit on your throne forever. Who's that? It's no angel. It's Jesus. Jesus is better. Third punch. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You feel the comparison here? Okay. Uh, firstborn son. I know we hate that concept in American culture. It's not egalitarian enough for us. Why should the firstborn son be special? Why should the firstborn son get the bigger inheritance? Please don't throw that away. If you do, you throw away the glory of the gospel. What was God saying in establishing primogeniture? That this one son, this first son, would represent him and receive the full of his inheritance. Toward what end? That Jesus would be that son. And that you and I, each one of us, would be in Christ just like firstborn sons. Without compare, he's the firstborn son. And then what does he say to make it as clear as possible? Who worships who here? Let the angels of God worship him. We're not sure what he's talking about exactly when he says brought him into the world. Is that his incarnation? Maybe. And what do we see at the incarnation of Jesus? On Christmas night, the angels flood the skies and are worshiping and celebrating the birth of this baby. Was it his resurrection and exaltation? Maybe. What does the Bible say to us that the angels do when they watch the gospel being unpacked and Jesus die and rise? Their jaws hit the ground. They marveled at this salvation. Wow. Or is he referring to his second coming when Christ returns and consummates the kingdom? What do we see throughout the book of Revelation? Angels and saints throwing their crowns on the ground and worshiping the Lord. So in that case, I go, it's all three? When he brings the firstborn into the world, the point is, Angels throw themselves down and worship him. Jesus is better. Fourth punch. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Can you feel the argument in here? Your throne, O oh God. Now I know we love to do Greek word studies to tell you why that doesn't mean that Jesus is divine. It does. Your throne, O oh God. We could talk about that more in depth. But to an angel, has the Lord ever spoken that way? Never. And can you feel the comparison here? Jesus Christ took on flesh like us. One of the things that means is that he was tempted like us and yet without sin. The angels are without sin, but they never walked in our shoes. But Jesus in our shoes loved righteousness and hated wickedness. What angel has been sinless under the temptations that we face? None. 
And so the Lord has said, you, anointed beyond all companions, Jesus is better. Fifth punch. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. You are the same. And your years will have no end. Can you feel it in here? We saw before that angels are ministers, but he is God. Here we see that angels are creatures, but Jesus is creator. Totally different category. Angels have a start date, but Jesus has no start date. His rule and reign is from beginning to end, eternal. Jesus is better. And then he finishes with this one, the last one. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Sit up here does not mean rest, take a breather. It does not mean chill out in your easy chair. Sitting here means ruling, reigning, like Theoden on his throne. You sit here and all others serve you. Who's the only person who holds the position of authority in all of the universe? There's no angel that sits in that seat. It's only of the Son that the Father said, you get to sit here. Jesus is better. Okay, he goes at length to start the book this way so that you would get ready for the argument, and here's how we would sum it up. Jesus is infinitely, immeasurably, incomparably, no contest. It's not even close, better than, and this week it was, angels. Okay, you may look at me and say, thanks for the Bible lesson, Cruz, but I'm not really into angels. And I've had no temptation at all to be uh, banking my life on or revolving my life around angels. Fine. What the Spirit wants to do with these words is to say to you, great, if it's not angels, then what is it? If it was angels for these people, what is it for you? Another way to say it is, what in this created order, what girl or guy, what experience, what reality, what created thing does your heart tempted to say, ah, if I got that, I can bail on Jesus. If I've got this, I don't really need him. You feel that? That's the point of this argument. If you're not a Hebrew, but you're a American Bostonian, you will be tempted in the same direction. I don't need Jesus because I have something just as good or really, really close. What is your temptation to give glory to something that cannot hold that weight? What is it in your life, in my life, that we say, this can take the place of Jesus or come really, really close? Of any of those things, has God ever said, this will actually save you. This will actually satisfy you.
beautiful refrain in the Christian scriptures that goes like this. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. That doesn't mean we don't do a hundred other things. It means if you dug down to the center of my life and found the one thing that's at the top of that list, set apart from the other things that everything else revolves around, a Christian says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus only. It's Jesus alone. My life is completely built on the glory and the grace and the goodness of Jesus. It's built on angels. The writer wants you to hear, what the? Are you crazy? What are you doing? But if it's built on anything else this morning, if you cannot look in the mirror and say, my life is built on Christ, then you are building on sand and it makes no sense. The Lord has spoken clearly. This is my son. This is my son. Center your life on him. Let us get ready to hear that over and over this year. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the clarity of your word. You've made it plain to us if we'll just look at it. Your son has been anointed. He's been resurrected. He's been appointed. He's been named. He's been marked out as better than any other Savior. And so we set our hearts to worship Him like the angels do, to revel in Him, to follow Him, to obey Him. I pray that you would meet us as we attempt to do that well together. And I pray that we would have the kind of joy that goes, we got Jesus, we got it all. We've got Jesus, we've got it all. Thanks for the good news of this new covenant gospel. We believe it together today. Amen.